have moved out of God's purposes for suffering. And now we will look at apostolic uniqueness. I had someone say uh, two verses. What do you think? Six weeks? <laughs> Just for that, it'll be 12. <laughs> I will do this one jot and one tittle at a time. If you would please turn in your Bibles. Second Corinthians 12, 11 and 12. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Bible. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your precious bride, the church, even in these strange days in which we live. Help us, my King, my Lord. Help us to see this. Help us to be discerning. Help us stand fast in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And as we see what the Apostle Paul tells us, let us take it to heart and understand the day and the age. In Christ's name, amen. I remember a friend of mine years ago made a statement. I admire him greatly. And he says, every great heresy come out of seminaries. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. So I went back and did some research, and that's not exactly true. Okay. There are some great seminaries. The one in Geneva, Switzerland, to this day, and that was founded in the 1500s. And to this very day is awesome. Well, the one in Geneva, a, a gentleman that you've all heard of, wanted to buy it and move it to Virginia. Okay, his name was Thomas Jefferson. I will say this. Every great heresy comes from leadership. Okay. Every one of them came from leadership. We are going through an area here. It's actually chapter 10 through 11 or 12, 22, 21. It's basically spiritual warfare. I received a a thing this week on a Muslim, a devout Muslim, studying to be an imam, who came to the realization reading through the Quran that Jesus Christ was Lord. Okay, and you're like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then the guy that I was conversing back and forth with, I said, well, why don't the rest of them read it? And he says, 88% of Muslims, 88% of Muslims are illiterate. They can't read the Quran. Someone has to tell them what it says. Okay? The problem that I deal with is that Christians won't read it. They can read, but it just takes too much time to read the Bible. And um, that is the spiritual war. It's overwhelming. It's overarching theme that we are dealing with. And we started in chapter 10. Okay. And he hasn't changed. He hasn't moved off of it. 
All right. And the reason is it is speculations and lofty things raised up against the true knowledge of God. If I've got your email and you want a copy of it, Dr. MacArthur has given a profound statement. No, we'll call it a message on the Supreme Court ruling. Okay. To the point that several legal representatives have placed a cease and desist order on the master's college and the master's seminary. They don't understand it. I think four of his elders are lawyers and two of them are federal judges. So they might have the hands full trying to get him to cease and desist. But it's, a, it's an excellent, uh, it's worth listening to. I'm not going to tell you it's going to be encouraging, but I'm telling you it's worth listening to. Because we are at war, whether you know it or not. Because you have an opponent that doesn't quit. The battle never changes. There is an amazing phenomenon that has happened in my lifetime and in my ministerial lifetime. That I actually never, never would have dreamed could happen. Because the phenomenon that is happening in the church right now has crossed all lines of all denominations. And has grown now to be the norm. Part of the reasoning behind it. One. Christians don't read their Bible because if they would read their Bible, they would realize that this is wrong. But with television, radio, music, services, books, and we even have schools now where you can learn to be a prophet. I call it the experiential movement. Okay. I do not like calling it the charismatic movement because the word chrismos is grace. And I classify myself as charismatic because I am under grace. But it is experiential. And it has moved in ways that I would have never, ever dreamed. When I was growing up, my grandmother lived down in the cold country of Kentucky. Um, they call them hollers. Okay, and I thought that meant a bunch of people would run up through there and yell, but that's not what it was. And this place where she lived, because it was in this hole, canyon, ditch, holler, you couldn't get television at all. Okay, and so on Saturday nights, we would sit across uh, on her front porch. She had one of them wraparound covered porches. We'd sit on the porch and we'd watch this church across the street from her house. And it was entertaining, to say the least. My father was a non-believer. Me and my brother were non-believers. And you could watch people run in one door and jump out the windows and scream and run back in the doors. And you just sit there thinking, that there's just not normal. Okay? I, I just looked at it and said, That's, you know, I don't care what anybody says. That's, that there's not right. I've seen people in bars do that. Okay, they, they don't do that in church. Okay. There are healings. Um, 
There's a group here in Castle Rock who've had over 50 healings in the last three weeks. And they've done it with elementary kids' Sunday school classes because they have the faith of a child and therefore they can heal people. I have seen barking in the spirit and it is promoted. I have seen laughing in the spirit. I have seen fainting in the spirit. These are not down in the hollers of Kentucky. These are mainline churches. I remember when the great issue was speaking in tongues. <laughs> Minor. I'd give anything if somebody do it. Then I'm going to have to deal with some of this other silly stuff. But let me tell you something at its core. Okay? Of all of it. Listen, I don't care if it's the seeker-sensitive movement. I don't care if it's the saddleback movement, the purpose-driven movement, the experiential movement. I don't care what it is. They all have one fundamental thing at their core. All right? And the Apostle Paul is fighting it. So I want you to know something. It isn't new. And that core belief is there is continuing revelation. Okay? God is still revealing. At that core, at that place, what you end up with is what I call... Um, I call it the apostolic era, the era of the apostles. And what they say by the fact that there is still continuing revelation is that the, the apostolic era was not a unique time. And actually, the era of the apostles should be the norm. There, I know three schools right now that will teach you how to be a prophet and during the process of your education, they will find out whether you are truly an apostle. Okay? Mainline schools. They say that there are apostles today. Let me give you a little detail here for a minute. The letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Speaking of God, he ascended. What does this mean? But he descended to lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself. Also, he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. Then he says this. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as preachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service. For the building up of the body of Christ. Alright. Now some people will take that text and say. See there. They're all there all the time. Is that really what it means? I thought the church was built on the foundation of the apostles. The cornerstone was Christ. Okay. We're 2,000 years out. Have we gotten over the foundation yet? Okay. If you really look at that text and you follow it, you can see the progression. Who laid the foundation? The apostles. Who would have been next? The prophets. Prophets are the ones who speak on behalf of God. Okay. You know what I'm doing right now? 
prophesying. I'm sharing you what? The word of God. You also see there. Some are pastors. A pastor, the word is pormia. And all that means is a shepherd. Is a shepherd. You've got evangelists. Who would bring people to the shepherd? Evangelists. I can honestly tell you, I'm not an evangelist. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like to see people get saved. But I'm not an evangelist. Okay? On, on my best day, I'm not an evangelist. I think in my whole 30 years of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, I think I've led four people to Christ. I can say this. None of them have walked away. So I'm thinking, I'm batting four for four. I don't want any more. No, just kidding. <laughs> that's, that's, that's just a good record right there now. Okay? But what happens is that people will come along and they'll say the apostolic era is the norm. We always have apostles. Okay? And you know what? I have heard some massive claims. Massive claims of people who claim to be apostles or that I know an apostle. Okay? Technically, if I use the word... There's two words that are very close together. One is anglios and one is apostolon. Okay, they're very close. Anglios is the word we get angel from. Okay, but angel is, oh, what is it? It's a messenger sent by God. Okay, apostolos is what? A messenger sent by God. All right? It's very simple, very easy. Now, the detail is one is an angelic being that is in the presence of God. And the other is a temporal being who's serving their savior. All right. But I want you to understand something. When I see all of these claims and I hear all the time, um, it's sort of like um, the church at Pentecost. That's a denomination. All right. I'm thinking that at Pentecost, we should be moved on a little bit. Don't you think? Kind of a little further down the road. I mean, at Pentecost, they did not even have a New Testament. All right. I've got a New Testament. All right. So I'm thinking that, you know, you kind of move out along with this. But but what I see is this movement has picked up a a lot of. uh, How shall I say? Followers. Okay, you know what's weird? If you go looking for an experience, you will find one. But my question would be to you when you find that experience, is it biblical? Is that true? Because I've seen it. I have, have a very dear friend of mine, been a number of years ago. There was a man who came into town and he called himself a prophet. Okay. With apostolic tendencies. And so my friend went to hear him speak. Toward the end of his message, he said that his ministry was to stir up the spirit 
and believers so that they'd be more effective. Now, I know this guy really well. We actually came to Christ about the same time. All right? We walk with Christ together. We helped each other. All right? This guy is not a doodah. Okay? He is a man of the book. I've watched him. All right? Anyway, at the conclusion of this man's message, he decided he was going to run around and he was going to blow on everybody's bellies. And by doing that, the biblical precedence for this is that when God created man, he blew into his nose. Okay, now I'm not really sure how those two go together, but nobody challenged him on it. All right? He began doing this, and my buddy was standing there, and he says, when the guy came along and blew on his belly, he says, he felt something. And I said, well, what'd you feel? He says, well, it was like something was moving. And I said, all right, but you got to ask yourself a question. He says, what's that? I was like, how do you get from blowing through the nostril of dirt to blowing on a belly and you say, thus saith the Lord? But he experienced something. Why? Because the whole message set up to get ready to experience something. I said, but the problem what you're dealing with is it's not true. All right. Remember, the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to be able to call fire down from heaven. Does that make him Christ? So if you're looking around for signs, what are you going to do when the Antichrist shows up? Follow him. This is what I want us to think about when we're going through here, because this confusion is not new. It's still very frustrating. Still very frustrating. And we should know better. But it's not true. Listen, the Lord Jesus himself commended the church in Ephesus in Revelations chapter 2, verse 2. Quote, you put to test those who called themselves what? Apostles. And they were not and found them to be false. If a person claims to be an apostle, test them. See if they are. Okay? Because if you're a true apostle, like the apostle Paul, when did you see Jesus? Tell me when you saw Jesus. Because a true apostle was called by the resurrected Christ personally. All right, so when did that happen? Like the Ephesians, the Corinthian church had been infiltrated by false apostles. You can go back to our text there in chapter 12 and you look at verse 13. And as for the respect, and in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me for this. Here it is the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. And what he's referring to is that these people who are among them are what? They're a burden. They're a burden. If you back up, you can see it again. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. You got that? 
What do they look like? If this ain't Bugs Bunny theology, they're not going to walk around with pitchforks and horns. What are they going to look like? The Corinthians, for whatever reasons, did not have discernment like that of the church in Ephesus. There are many in the Corinthian church who had embraced the lies of the deceivers. Okay, therefore, go back to 1 Corinthians, read just the first six chapters. Read the first six chapters. And you will see that church was flat out in chaos. Why? They had believed the false teachers. And you know what? Such attacks should be no surprise. If you have read your Bible, you will see that it's a common factor. And you know what? This attack, this infiltration into the true ranks of God's people should be seen over and over and over. I will give you just a handful. Okay? We're not going to look at all of these. But you can write them down and you can go look them up. He, Satan is the father of lies. John 8.44. Okay? But the one that really stands out, when something is repeated in Scripture, it really gets my attention. Okay? He says... Satan is the enemy of God's truth. Right? Now, you say, well, okay. Mark 4.15. No problem. He also says it in Luke 23.3. He says it in John 13.27. It's said in Acts 5.3. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Revelations 20, verse 3, verse 8, and verse 10. All right, now if he repeats it that many times that he's an enemy to God's truth, I'm thinking that, you know what? He's sort of saying from heaven, hello, I'm talking to you. Satan has always opposed God's messengers, and Satan has always opposed God's message. And one of the liar's tactics is to attack the credibility of God's spokesman. Now, I want you to think about something for a second. I have two texts I'm just going to share with you quickly. Okay, the one you've heard and you've always paid attention to it, you listen to it, and you kind of identify with it. It comes out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 31. Okay? It's a very familiar text. Jesus looks at Peter and says... Satan has asked to sift you, to shake you. Okay, now did you see what just happened there? Why would Satan want to pick on Peter? Who was going to be the spokesman for the disciples? Let me discredit the spokesman of the disciples. And you say, well, you know, that was Peter, that was this. Well... That's not a new phenomenon, people. I can take you back a few years prior. Because it's a fascinating text. And I, I think it just, it's just a phenomenal text. But I want you to think about this for a second. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord 
Alright, that's cool, huh? And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The high priest of the Lord. Before an angel of God. And who was beside him? The accuser of the brethren. I want to bring accusations against God's messengers. Make it so that the people will not believe their message. Now listen, back to my text. Because of Paul's importance in the redemption plan that God has, you can't find anyone other than Christ himself who was more assaulted by Satan than the Apostle Paul. You understand that? Who was taking the message to the Gentiles? Discredit Paul. The message don't go to the Gentiles. Yet Paul was always reluctant to defend himself. He definitely was reluctant when it came to the Corinthians. Because for the Apostle Paul to defend himself, that was extraordinarily distasteful. And he repeats it over and over and over. And he calls it foolishness to defend himself. 2 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he calls it foolishness. Verse 16, he calls it foolishness. Verse 17, he calls it foolishness. Verse 21, he calls it foolishness. Do you understand that defending yourself in the sense of spiritual warfare is what? Foolishness. Chapter 12, verse 6, he calls it foolishness. Now, Paul was a man of the book. He understood Scripture very well. He was a Pharisee. He was trained in that line. He would have known and he would have lived King Solomon's counsel. Here is a good bit of counsel for every single one of us. Quote, let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. Proverbs 27, 2. And yet, if you back to your text there, chapter 12, verse 11. I have become foolish. You yourselves, what? Compelled me. You have compelled me to boast. Why? Because you're following lies. Basically, you know, when I look at this, it, it, the Corinthians' silence forced Paul to speak. See, Paul knew this issue was important. Chapter 11, verse 3. I'm afraid... That as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He understood. He was afraid there would become faithless to Christ. He understood what was at stake here. That was the problem. That was the trouble. And instead of having to defend himself... He should have been commended by the Corinthians. Look what it says next. I should have been commended by you. 
There should be absolutely no reason whatsoever that I should have to defend myself to you, Corinth. And you know what? There is no excuse for their confusion. None. They should have jumped immediately at the Apostle Paul's defense. They should have lined up with hearty amens to defend this man. He was their spiritual father. There's no church in Corinth if Paul ain't there. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 15 1 Corinthians 9, verse 2. It was he who had brought the gospel to Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. Having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla... Because Claudius has commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them. And because he was sure of some, was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for by trade, they were tent makers, leather workers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God's whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household and many of the Corinthians, when they had heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. I have many people in this city. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Got it? He was their spiritual father. He is the one who brought the gospel to them. Why did they not defend him? The false, remember, they had their letters of commendation. Okay? Such and such sent me. I went to such and such seminary. I went to such and such college. I went to such and such ministry. I went to such and such place. And look, I have a letter that says I was really good. And yet, chapter 3, he says, the Corinthians themselves were Paul's letter of commendation. And yet, their failure to defend him is unexcusable. And you know what? I still, to this day, can't explain it. I know the subtleties of our enemy. I know how subtle he is. But I do not understand how you can turn your back on the one who brought you the gospel and there was no church until that man showed up. How do you do that? How do you walk away from that? And I'm not even going to talk about verse 12 until the next couple of weeks. Signs, wonders, and miracles. Well, yeah, okay. 
But if you're really honest with yourself, how did he get people to come to salvation there? Preaching the gospel. Christ and him crucified. Listen, he was there a year and six months. 18 months. House to house. Day and night. They had seen him. They saw his life. It wasn't like he would run off and hide and then come back like an evangelist. Look, I got a motorhome and three sermons and three suits. No, they saw what he was doing. They viewed his ministry. They viewed his life. He was among them. And you know what? He was above reproach and they should have known. And you know what? Now, let me, I want to make this clear as I can. The silence of the Corinthians on any accusation against the life or the ministry. Any people who do this. Now, I want you to hear me well. If you're silent on any accusation of the lives of God's ministers, these godly individuals, that makes them a part of the guilt of the liars. If you do not stand up for God's servants, then you are condoning the liars. Do you see how important this is? This isn't just a, well, you know, I just don't want to have a conflict. No, I'm going to knock you in the month of Sundays. No. Paul said, in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostle. He says that back here in 12 again. I mean, that's verse... 5 of chapter 11 and then in verse 12 he says it again in no respect am I inferior to the most eminent apostles okay remember that word we looked at that a couple of weeks ago maybe it was a couple of months ago that's a super apostle I'm not inferior to the super apostle now listen I, Paul's using sarcasm absolutely okay Be, look who he's talking to I am more eminent than the false apostles well gee whiz That's how some people regard themselves. I remember I was speaking at a conference down in Albuquerque and my name was before this guy's name. And he had a, uh, what do they do them call them pictures where, uh, what are they? Yeah, you know what those, you're trying to promote something so you get a, okay, well, I don't have any of those. All right, sorry, but I don't. Um, I, I do, but it's always someone else. You know, I, I put a picture of John Wayne up and says, there's Terry Ball. So they won't know me when they see me. But anyway, he was mad because he had his picture and I was before him and it just had my name. And I told him, change it. I, I, you know, I just assume they don't put my name on this brochure. You know, I'll go do my thing and then run. But I see this a lot. I see this an awful, awful lot. There are people who regard themselves as something. I mean, I think my mine will, I'll get a picture of Balaam's donkey. What do you think? You guys shouldn't laugh at that that hard. But anyway. But look what the Apostle Paul says about himself. In no respect 
was I inferior to the most eminent apostle? The, the, I'm, I'm not less than the super apostles, right? Even though I'm a nobody. Even though I'm a nobody. He makes this repeated statement over and over. First Corinthians, he hammers it hard. Chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 15, verse 9. He considers himself a nobody. There's nothing special about me. I'm just doing what the Lord has asked me to do. That's all it is. What's amazing about this right here is that he was far more superior than them. Mind-boggling. First and foremost, he was a true apostle. They were false. That makes him a little more superior. And to these that are in Corinth, we must understand that he alone, Paul alone, is the only apostle that was there. You know, that Paul passed his mantle of ministry on to a young man named Timothy. Do you know Timothy's never called an apostle? Who taught him? The apostle Paul. Well, why didn't he take the title of apostle? Hmm. I thought if the apostolic age was the norm, why wasn't Timothy an apostle? I don't know. Why didn't Luke become an apostle? He calls himself the good doctor. I think he's a better historian. Okay? But you don't call him Apostle Luke. But Paul hated to boast. Hated to boast. He was superior. He was superior to anyone in that town. And the Corinthians, whether it was because of foolishness or naivety, they had accepted the false apostles and he accepted them on the basis that I have a letter commending me as an apostle. And my question is going to be the same that I would have for every person in this room. Can you test it? Can you test it? No, 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 no. no. I don't want you to say, Terry, can you test it? I want you to test it. Can you test it? How do you know I'm not false? You've got to be able to test it. Hold it up to the light of truth and see what it is. And if you don't know what truth is, you're dead meat. You can get a slick talker come in and he'll lead you to hell quicker and you can get there on your own. Paul had no choice but to defend himself. So that's what we're beginning that's what we're starting into. What are the apostolic uniqueness? Paul was unique. Listen, let's be realistic. There's never been another like Paul. Chapter 10 on, he's dealing with this battle, these speculations and lofty things raised up against the truth of Christ. All right? But what he's going to do right here in 11 and 12, 11 is setting that stage and 12, he's going to empty both barrels into the false apostles. He's going to stick them right in their face and say, now what's really cool about this is this letter is in some man's hand in the pulpit in the Corinthian church and he's reading it and them false teachers are sitting there going, get out of the chair. 
if they're smart. Or perhaps we should start a church in Sicily. It is a spiritual war that he is dealing with beginning in chapter 10 through chapter 11, 22. And he's through chapter 12, 21. And he's defending right here his apostolic proof, his, his credentials. This is who I am. Remember, he's already did this. It says, remember all the suffering I've done? External, internal, emotional, spiritual, all those battles. And yet, what do I do? I keep plugging away at it. And guess what? God keeps honoring my perseverance. So you can sit and say, you know what? I'm not much to look at. You can say, you know what? He doesn't, you know, he's kind of homely. He can't really turn a phrase. I, you know, he, he speaks in dangling participles the whole time. And he says, yep, you're right. But look at the lives that are being changed. He is real. He's the genuine deal. He's a genuine apostle. And by doing this, he gives you and I the uniqueness of an apostle. And he does it two ways. The qualifications of an apostle and the power of an apostle. And we'll start looking at those next week. Let's pray. Father, I, there's times I don't even know what to pray. And yet, Father, you continue to do amazingly, exceedingly, beyond whatever I could think or imagine. Help my brothers and sisters, Lord, stand. Strange times. Very, very strange times. And yet, your church is still here, so we still have a task at hand. Father, we're still dealing with speculations. We're still dealing with lofty things raised up against truth. We are still dealing with the father of lies. And Father, we are still struggling with the enemies of your truth. Father, help us. Help us to be more than conquerors. Help us to hold fast that that is true. And Father, I pray for every one of us here that you would put instill in us a supernatural hunger for your word. Overwhelm us with a desire to know your book so that we may test those who would claim to be messengers, to be apostles, to be prophets, to be whatever they claim, that we can hold it up to the light of truth. And Father, say, that ain't what your word says, sir. Help us, my king. Help us. In Christ's name. Amen.